This morning, uh, our message is going to be in John chapter 8, and I'd invite you to turn there with me now to, to John 8. You'll, you'll find in the New Testament of your Bible, which goes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, and then if you get to the book of Acts, you've gone just a little bit too far, move back to the left. If you're using an app, you can actually use our church app to access this as well, but I encourage you to bring your Bibles each week as we do believe in marking up the Scriptures, studying them, and learning them better ourselves. And this passage in John chapter 8 is vivid. Uh, this is one of these passages, this is one of these stories that once you understand the context of this story, once you understand what is really going on in this story, it will forever etch itself in your brain. This is a passage in which you see Jesus strong and simultaneously Jesus gentle. It's a passage in which you see Jesus compassionate and you see Jesus convicting. And it's a passage in which you see Jesus full of grace and full of truth. The setting again is right after the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is one of the leading festivals of the Jewish people. The Jewish people partied a lot. They knew to celebrate as they had been through so many very difficult times. They also took the time to celebrate God's provision. And that's what has just been happening both in Galilee and in Jerusalem. And Jesus and the disciples have now, figured, have now finished the Feast of the Tabernacles, and Jesus is going to go up to the Mount of Olives to be alone and pray. As he oftentimes does, he separates from the big crowds, he's with the big crowds, then he leaves the big crowds, and he spends some time alone, sleeping, I presume, on the Mount of Olives in prayer. And then we pick up the story there in uh, John chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Then they all went home after the Feast of the Tabernacles, but Jesus, he went to the Mount of Olives, as was often his custom. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning on him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin you go ahead and cast the first stone. Again, he stooped down and he wrote in the ground a second time. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now 
and leave your life of sin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We ask, God, that you would teach us from your word this morning. We thank you for the power of Jesus' message in this story. We thank you that it was something greater than the religious teachers of the day. Father, we know that sometimes your word afflicts those of us who are comfortable. And there's probably some in this room today that are comfortable the way they are living, even if it is below your standard, oh God. And we would invite you, God, if that's us, to afflict us in our comfort. And we know also, Lord, that your word comforts those who are afflicted. And in a room this size, those watching online, those in the venue, there are some today who are afflicted. There are some who are in great pain. There are some who are hurt by this world. And we ask God that you would comfort them through the words of your scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for your presence to us through the Holy Spirit. We trust ourselves to you now in Christ's name. Amen. So the teachers of the law in this story are the Jewish religious scholars. And the Jewish religious scholars, of course, were these experts in the Old Testament law, principally the first five books of the Bible, oftentimes called the Law of Moses, as it's referred to here. They're also experts in what has become the oral tradition There's an oral tradition on top of the Old Testament law that's called the Mishnah. And they're experts on the Mishnah and how the tradition has built across the centuries such that they can quote all of that as that oral tradition has been written down, chapter and verse. And part of the law was a great punishment for adultery. Now, there were different kinds of punishments that could be meted out, but one of the possible punishments was stoning. This is hard for us even to fathom in our world. Apparently, they have caught this woman in the act of adultery, and the law required that someone had to be caught literally in the act by at least two witnesses. So in all likelihood, what has happened is this woman has caught last night, the previous evening, and now she's paraded into the temple courts, presented before Jesus who is teaching, she very well may be naked. The man, of course, is conspicuously absent. This is not justice, this is shame. They could have dealt with it in private, They should have dealt with it in private, of course. They didn't need to stone her, but it was a criminal act in Israel at the time. This seems, again, really, really difficult for us to fathom today, but it shouldn't be that difficult to fathom because it was just in 1953 that adultery was illegal in the United States. It was a criminal act here. And across the world, there's many, many countries in which adultery is still a criminal act today. And again, that seems odd, that seems really, really different, but Israel was organized in such a way that they were taught and they believed you got to get marriage right. You got to get it right. And the beginning of getting marriage right, of course, is this faithfulness sexually within the context 
of marriage. Now that's the backdrop. They've made a spectacle of her, and then they bring her before Jesus, and they're trying to shame her, but they're also trying to catch Jesus in a trap. What they want to do is trap him such that this man who's known for his great teaching and his compassion to those who are left out on the margins would be trapped in a hard place in which he doesn't have an answer for the law and for compassion to this woman. Unfortunately, that didn't go too well for them. Verse 5, let any one of you who is without sin, sorry, verse 7, let any one of you who is, out, who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. They come, verse 5, to say, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say, Jesus? And he says, okay, how about your record? How does it look? If you're without, stone, if, if you're without sin, then you, you, you go ahead and you, you be the first one to th- throw the stone. To which they say, ugh, like he did it again. He foiled us again. We just can't catch this guy. Like no matter how much we try to catch him, he just finds this way to foil us and he kind of moves things around and subverts our games and they drop their stones and walk away one by one. But Jesus isn't done right there. As you know, the story concludes, and he has some beautiful and also some choice words for this woman who was presented to him. And I pray that between the different chapters of John that we've been through to to this point, you're starting to see a theme emerge here. Okay, because in chapter 4, you see Jesus freeing this woman from shame, this Samaritan woman who had been through a number of husbands. And she had no dignity, no standing in her community. And then in chapter 6, you see this paralyzed man. And Jesus frees this paralyzed man who likewise was shamed in his community. And now you come into chapter 8 and you see this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And likewise, he restores to her her dignity. You see these themes emerging again and again. This is Jesus, the compassionate, who uplifts those who have been shamed by their communities and restores dignity to them. And friends, this is what the gospel does for us. It restores us. It forgives us. It frees us. It renews. And it welcomes us. Look up on the screen. You'll see a definition for the gospel that we use oftentimes in here. I've shared this many times in this room, but let's read it out loud together, both in this room and in the venue, even online. Would you join me in reading this definition of the gospel out loud with me, please? The gospel is the good news of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, which freely forgives and regenerates sinners and welcomes them into God's family. I I hope that you would even memorize that. I use it so much because I hope you would memorize it. It's so good. It's not the only definition of gospel, but this is in essence what the good news of Jesus is, and it's great news. It's the best news this world has ever heard. That Jesus died for us perfectly. He was perfect. We are imperfect. He validated his death for us by rising from the grave He freely forgives us, not due to anything that we bring to the table, but because of his mercy, because of his grace, he freely forgives us. And he doesn't stop there, he regenerates us. From the inside out, 
He comes to our heart and he gives us a new heart. He puts a new spirit in us that pulses with the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to become what we could not do on our own. And then he brings us into his family where there is no shame and there is no dignity. That's the good news. You want that? Oh man, I want that. I want to live out of that on a daily basis. And it's this gospel that I pray you would hear today that whatever your present struggles might be, whatever your present disappointments might be, whatever your beliefs might be today, you might have come in today and you don't know what you believe about God. That's fine. We're so glad though that you're here. This is what the Bible teaches about the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, and it's for you too. It's for all of us here today. Whatever your struggles, whatever your sin failures, what I want you to hear this morning is this big idea. It's this. Whatever your struggles, whatever your sin failures, the keys to overcoming your sin, whatever it might be, are these two things. Receiving the grace and the mercy of God again and again and again and again as a daily pattern of life. Not one time for salvation, a daily pattern of life, receiving the grace and the mercy of God. And then number two, with it, I hate my sin. I got sin. I have certain temptations. I have certain character weaknesses, and I hate them. And I look in the mirror, and I focus on those, and I fight against them. It's these two things. And if you can hold on that to, uh, onto that today, who would like, by show of hands, to have more power over your character weaknesses? Anyone? Come on. Come on. All right, those of you who did not raise your hand, we're going to talk after church. Okay, we all would want more power over our character weaknesses. And these are two keys to getting there. We see them both in this passage. Once again, look at verse 10. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. That's grace and mercy. He doesn't stop there. Verse 11, go now, dear lady, go now and leave your life of sin. That's truth. That's truth. It's not one or the other. It's both. And this is what God does for us. God gives us his mercy, and mercy is withholding from us the punishment that we deserve. You've done some things wrong, and God in his mercy withholds punishment from you that you deserve. God does that for us. God gives us grace, and grace is giving us more blessings than we deserve showering on us free gifts that we do not deserve, blessing us beyond what we deserve. That's grace, and he does that for us too. And truth is leveling with us about our character weaknesses, about the ways that we sometimes fall beneath his standard, being honest with us about those, and God does that for us as well. This is the way of Jesus. He leads with grace, he says, does anyone condemn you? Neither do I. He leads with grace, and then he follows up with truth. He wins people's hearts, and then he follows up with truth 
go now and leave your life of sin. You gotta get this order right if you're gonna minister to people. Now, what happens if you drop truth before dropping grace? In my experience, what happens is it lands like a brick. And it hurts people. Because you haven't yet earned the right to speak into their lives that is earned through demonstrating that you love people right where they are. And so we don't drop truth before grace. We get the order right, much as Jesus does here well, with this woman. He drops grace first, and then truth follows. And because he did so, even as he gives these very challenging words to her, dear lady, leave your life of sin. Don't go back to this again. Leave that man that you were with. Forget about all of that. Don't enter into that life again. Forget about the pornography. Forget about the anger. Forget about the greed. Leave all that. That is what he's saying. But he's able to land that because first, he stands... In between these religious scholars and their stones and this woman and her body. He takes the role of protector by graciously caring for her, standing in between and refusing to allow her to be terrorized by these religious scholars. Now this raises a couple questions for each of us, at least for me. Two questions that I would ask you out of this passage are, number one, do you have someone who speaks truth and grace into your life? Who do you have that regularly speaks grace into your life, blesses you for who you are, even when you make mistakes, and who do you have that speaks truth into your life as well? I think we all need accountability. I certainly do. I need to have two or three men who have liberty, and I do have two or three guys that have liberty to speak truth into my life when they see that I'm missing the mark in my attitude, in my words, in my deeds, and I just invite them in. That's question number one. And then question number two, how are you fighting against your own areas of moral struggle? How are you fighting against your own character weaknesses, whatever they might be? One is, of course, outlined here in this passage, but I just listed a whole bunch of others. And then there are many others that we would all recognize. God says, be perfect as I am perfect. So where am I falling beneath his perfection? God, help me to hate that. Help me to hate that and to fight against that. And by the power of your spirit in me, that I would grow against that. One of the top leaders in our church, one of the truly most godly men I know in so many ways, he's generous, he's sacrificial in his love for other people. One of the top leaders in our church, he took me aside not too long ago and he said, Adrian, I have to confess to you that I can have a critical spirit. I have to just admit to you that I can struggle with being critical at times with family and friends and with people that I expect a lot from. And Adrian, I wondered if you would speak into me if you ever see that from me. <laughs> to which I'm like, well, critical spirit, like that doesn't rank very high. Okay, I mean on the list of big sins, that one's not at the top. But he, he wouldn't excuse it. He recognized this is not honoring to God. It's not honoring to others. It's not discernment. It's a critical spirit. And so he said, if you see this in me, would you please tell me? Would you help 
keep me accountable for this. That is hating your own sin to the point of dealing with it. And friends, these are just everyday gospel habits. These aren't for like the few and the proud. These are for all of us. These are everyday gospel practices to hate our own sinful inclinations, whatever they might be, and to receive the mercy and grace of God on a daily basis, realizing that we need the mercy and grace of God every day. And if we do these two things, we will grow in that beautiful word called sanctification. Sanctification is just becoming more and more like Christ over time as we lean into the Holy Spirit and what God says about us. I love the way 2 Corinthians 7 puts it. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. What you see from that man that I just mentioned is a godly sorrow over his critical spirit. There is an appropriate kind of guilt about what we do wrong. We've lost that in our culture, but there's an appropriate guilt about missing the mark even in our attitudes. Now, there's also an inappropriate guilt that goes on and on, and that's the worldly sorrow that leads to death. The inappropriate guilt is like a corrosive battery acid that ruins the soul and makes us useless for the kingdom because it's accompanied by shame and never having the feeling of being forgiven. Have you had that? Okay, that's inappropriate guilt. That's worldly sorrow that leads to an experience kind of like death is what Paul is saying. But worldly sorrow brings salvation and leaves no regret. Some of us in this room have big, ugly experiences in our past, big, hairy, painful decisions in our background, which we are ashamed of. Some of us have lots of them. Some of us in this room would identify with the woman in the story. Whether you're a man or woman, you would identify with this. This is your story. And you got to hear the grace and the mercy of God out of Jesus' words, and then also the truth of God from Jesus' words to you. I was talking with a, a friend some time ago who has this as part of her story. She has sexual sin as part of her story, and she's had plenty, plenty of godly sorrow over that. And she's gone through excessive pain because of her own mistakes at the hands of other people. She's also gone through excessive pain. People have hurt her, other men who have hurt her in the physical realm, in the sexual realm. She's been hurt a lot. And she takes on this narrative, if she's not careful, that goes something like this. I failed so many years ago, and I know that I'm forgiven by God, kind of. I'm not quite sure that I'm forgiven by God. And maybe I'm going through all this pain now because God needs me to be punished a little bit more for what I did all those years ago. I need to be punished some more so I would work off some more of the pain that I've incurred, that I've put on someone else, I need to be punished a little bit longer. And that's the story that tends to be on repeat in her brain, and that is called worldly sorrow. Maybe you're there today, and this is the gospel word that I shared with her and that I would share with you today if you're there. It's this, you 
cannot add to the punishment that's already been paid. You, you can't do it. You cannot add to the punishment that's already been paid by Jesus. It's been completely paid for you. You can't add to it by going around with excessive shame and excessive guilt when that's already been dealt with. You see, Jesus took our sin when he went upon that old rugged cross that we just sang about. When the Romans put those six-inch nails into his hands and into his feet, and they took that spear and they put it through his rib cage and they put the crown of thorns around his brow, they believed that they were being the final punishment for him. But in truth, he was, by God's plan, taking on our punishment for our sins in order to bring us to God such that there is nothing that can be paid to bring us to God. It's already been taken care of. We cannot add to it through excessive shame and inappropriate guilt. No, he takes on our punishment for our sin. 1 Peter 3 puts it this way, for Christ also suffered once. You don't suffer again. Christ suffered once for all sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's righteous, we are unrighteous in order to bring us to God. Oh man, that's what I want. I don't want to be punished again and again and again. I want to live out of the freedom that the grace and the mercy of God provides. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, likewise says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus had no sin, to become sin for you and me in order that we, through him, would become the righteousness of God. This is like the great exchange, the greatest exchange ever. He gives his righteousness for our unrighteousness. We get, his we get his righteousness, he takes our unrighteousness. He pays all the costs, we get all the benefits, we come to God. Oh man, it's so good. Is there anyone in here with me this morning? Come on, this is so, so good. To know this is true, that God takes our unrighteousness, that God takes our imperfections, that God takes all of our sins, he puts them on his back, and then we are brought to the love of God as a result. And so what I did in this conversation was just remind this friend of mine of the gospel that she already believes that we cannot add to the punishment that's already been paid. That her feeling of ongoing shame for what happened so many years ago is not helping her. And she can't be punished more. She simply needs to live out of the grace and the mercy of God and hate any inclination toward old sin though, that might come in, but live out of the grace and mercy of God. Because it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. He has paid all the price, as Tim said earlier in the service. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Live out of that. You, you see, she kind of had this idea about justice that comes more from Buddhism or Hinduism than it does from biblical Christianity. It was more like a karmic idea that I did something wrong and now God is exacting his punishment on me over and over again over time. That's not biblical Christianity. That's Eastern religion. Biblical Christianity is there's nothing you can do to earn God's approval. He gives it to you free of charge. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? And then will you live out of that? 
weeks after that conversation, my friend came back to me and she said, after you told me about the character of God for me, that Jesus paid it all, that there's nothing I could do to pay any more punishment, I haven't thought about my failure again for weeks. And she was riddled by it every day for years until that time. She hates her old life. She wants nothing to do it. Now she's living out of God's mercy, living out of God's grace, and she has newfound power to live like Christ, and that's what's offered to all of us. I love the way Francis Spufford puts it in his wonderful book titled Unapologetic, Why Christianity Still Makes Sense in This Complex World. He says this, Christianity is not, Christianity is not about gathering up all the good people the shiny, the happy, the squeaky clean, and excluding the, bl- the bad people, the frightening, the alien, the repulsive. Are we, are we reading the Gospel of John? Do we see that? We see that in the Gospel of John, right? Christianity is not about gathering up the squeaky people and putting aside the alien or the bad people. Why? For the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Come on. There aren't any good people. There's not good people and bad people. There's just people that are in need of the grace and the mercy of God. There aren't any good people. This goes flat contrary to the predominant image of Christianity existing in prissy little enclaves far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. Of course there are Christians like that. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. A league of the guilty that have been forgiven by the good news of the gospel, brought into the grace and the mercy of God that forever changes us. And so I just imagine that Jesus perhaps would come to each and every one of us. And I imagine this for my own life last week as I was preparing for this message. And he would kneel down in the sand And he would look me in the eye, and he'd put his hand on my shoulder, and he would say to me, Adrian, does anyone condemn you? Then neither do I. And he'd shower his grace and his mercy over me, in spite of my many failures. And then he would say, Adrian, leave your sin. Leave it. Leave your judgmental attitudes. Leave your angry spirit at times. Leave your impatience. Leave your sin and walk with me. You see, the way we begin to gain victory over our sin struggle, whatever they might be, is by receiving the grace and the mercy of God. And then asking God's help to hate, to fight against our sin, whatever it might be. So, Father, that's what we're praying for. You are so, so good to us. You are so kind to treat us better than we deserve. We are unable to climb up the ladder and be good enough for you. And so by your grace, you come to us 
and you treat us far better than we deserve. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for withholding the punishment that we deserve. By your mercy, you withhold punishment from us. Certainly for all of eternity, but sometimes even in time, as you did for this woman, you choose by your mercy to withhold punishment from us. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us so much that you are not willing to leave us where we are. Each of us has something that we recognize we are not where we want to be. And you love us right there. And you refuse. Because you are truthful and because you are loving, you refuse to leave us there. We thank you that you are a beautiful God. You are radiant in glory. Your character is so perfect. You are holy and just, and yet at the same time, you are loving and gracious. And we give you glory and praise for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.